Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 3, The Face of Death. Last week, we touched on the initial triggers that started one of the most important events in human history, the French Revolution. We talked about France's crippling debt, made worse by a regressive tax system kept in place by a conservative aristocracy that was averse to even hearing the word change, which then led to a futile last-ditch attempt to make France solvent. Then we talked about the convening of the Estates General and how its utterly ridiculous form of representation led to the eventual formation of the National Constituent Assembly, and from there, how these Assembly members began to debate on how to form a constitution for the country. We talked about the storming of the Bastille, which would officially kick off the revolution, and how through this the Ancien Régime was essentially abolished. And finally, we touched on the Women's March at Versailles and how this forced King Louis and his family to come back to Paris for what would end up being a permanent stay. And now that we've gotten this far and we've got the king back in Paris, it's time to talk about the remaining half of the first half of the French Revolution. Did you follow that? Yes? Good. Because this episode is going to be a blitz through 1789 to 1793, and then we're going to get back to our main actor, Napoleon. And he might even have a small cameo in this episode, because as I mentioned last week, without Napoleon there really is no end to the French Revolution. So while the assembly members were debating constitutions and the Parisian women were dragging the king and his family back to the capital, there is another major player we need to address that has been lost in all of this chaos. And that, of course, is the Catholic Church. To be French in the 18th century essentially also meant that you were Catholic. Religious toleration was near non-existent in the Ancien Régime, and the throne and altar were commonly thought of as synonymous. Indeed, both failed to function without the other. Now, this was especially true when it came to economics. The French Catholic Church was the largest landowner in France, owning nearly 10% of all the estates, and they levied heavy tithes on local peasants, also around 10%. They collected all of this while really paying no taxes themselves, and, of course, much of the money would be pocketed by individual clergymen for one purpose or another. Now, needless to say, much of this backdoor corruption was not lost on any members of the assembly when they brought up the Catholic Church during their August decrees. Now, we mentioned last week that the decrees did announce freedom of worship, which for many Protestants living in Paris was a major relief as they had suffered heavy persecution for centuries under the Ancien Régime. But the decrees also did away with the tithes, stripping the church of their primary source of revenue. And to add further insult to injury for the church, in November of 1789, the Assembly voted to confiscate all church property and use its nominal value to back the new paper currency of France, the Assignat. Now, in return, the Assembly assumed all debts, would pay the clergy their salaries, and care for the sick and poor. But over time, the Assembly would gradually encourage members of the church to return to private life and begin a secular way of living. Naturally, this infuriated the Catholic Church, and His Holiness, Pope Pius VI, was apoplectic at the thought of having the church be subservient to the state. 
This only added further resentment from the assembly and also confirmed their suspicions that the church had really immense influence over the French public and foreign policy. So the assembly enacted the civil constitution of the clergy on July 12, 1790, which made the priests employees of the state, allowed the state to set their salaries, and gave the state the authority to choose priests and bishops via election. It also, and this is a big one, required that the clergy swear loyalty to France over the church. Now this went over about as well as you can imagine, and it further inflamed tensions not just with the assembly and the church, but with the more conservative regions of France outside of Paris. Because you see, it may come as a surprise to some of you, but there were a lot of regions in France that did not exactly subscribe to liberté, égalité, et fraternité. Many of them were out in the west, near the Atlantic Ocean, and were traditionally Catholic and conservative. Now, while they were subject to the Ancien Régime's estate system, the loathing for the church and nobility was not as strong in the countryside as it was in Paris. Many of these areas had smaller populations, and thus they knew their parish priests and noblemen on personal levels, forming closer relationships and bonds with them. This led to the peasantry being treated relatively fairly by the regional nobility in comparison to their urban contemporaries. It doesn't really make sense to mistreat the small community you interact with on a daily basis. Think of it as an extended family, if you will. So when the civil constitution came into effect and the clergymen of these regions were made to swear the oath of allegiance to France, it incensed the locals. Of particular scorn was the thought that a bunch of bourgeois assemblymen from Paris could elect a local priest, send him to their towns, and have them extol the assembly's revolutionary agenda on the community. Now, these decrees stiffened popular resistance against the radicals, and soon, civil war and counter-revolution would break out against the assembly in these regions, none more infamous than in the Vendée, where some of the bloodiest fighting would take place throughout the course of the French Revolution. As a result of this resistance, the assembly began to implement state-led persecution of the clergy, and many of them would flee France as émigrés to avoid arrest and potential execution. Now, naturally, much of the disorder in the countryside would come to affect the assembly in Paris. Early on in the Revolution, from about October 1789 to the early spring of 1791, Paris was, for the most part, peaceful, thanks in no large part, of course, to the National Guard being posted throughout the city, making the French capital arguably the best police city in all of Europe. The same, however, could not be said on the periphery, and this violence would make its way onto the political scene, creating political divisions that would come to define the first half of the French Revolution. On the one side, you had the conservatives, who denounced the revolution in all its forms, and included members such as orator Jacques-Antoine-Marie de Casales and Cardinal Jean-Cifre-Marie. While the conservatives made up a small portion of the assembly, they would often form coalitions with the centrists, who advocated for political reform, but were more staunchly in favor of keeping the status quo for the sake of law and order. The most famous of these centrists were, of course, the Comte de Mirabeau, the Abbé Sies, and the Marquis de Lafayette. Now, this coalition of the two factions created a majority in the assembly and led to heated contention with the more radical liberal wing of that assembly, led by no other than Maximilien Robespierre. Supported by radical newspapers published by the likes of Camille Desmoulins and the infamous Jean-Paul Marat, the radical faction would gain popularity among the working classes for opposing the ideas of active citizens, that is, citizens who were given civil liberties but were unable to vote or run for office. Now, among other important items, the assembly was unable to come to a consensus on universal suffrage, cheap prices for basic necessities like food, and the formation of labor unions, all proposals that would have affected the lower classes of Paris. Now, as these fissures in the assembly began to coalesce, we begin to see an ideological transformation in the first part of the French Revolution. Initially, it was a bourgeois revolution, run mainly by the upper middle classes of the Third Estate, with sympathetic support from the first two estates. But now, 
we begin to see the rise of the lower classes of the third estate demand a larger say in the formation of public policy. That is, we start to see the beginning of the revolution in which the sans culotte begin to have a major influence. But again, even with all this rising discord, Paris is still relatively peaceful. Sure, there were the occasional uprisings and lynchings here or there, but again, generally speaking, with the presence of the National Guard and the endemic revolutionary fervor, Paris did seem to have a general sense of collective unity. But unfortunately, in the summer of 1791, one of the most famous events in the French Revolution would begin to really tear that unity apart, the flight to Varennes. Because you may be wondering during all of this, look, there's a lot of chaotic movement in Paris right now, but what about Louis and his family? What have they been up to this entire time? I'm glad you asked, because you see, ever since the Women's March on Versailles, Louis and his family have been held under practical house arrest in the Tuileries Palace in Paris. Now, while he made appearances at public events, notably the year anniversary celebrating the storming of the Bastille in July of 1790, his role as a monarch was far more curtailed in the wake of the establishment of the National Constituent Assembly. But still, he had regular contact with the outside world through letters, and he would often write to his now emigrate brother, the Comte d'Artois. Now, the Comte d'Artois, and as a refresher, the future King Charles X, now living in Austria as a virtual refugee, urged Louis to reassert his royal authority by force, first by traveling to Montmédy near the Austrian border and rendezvous with 10,000 loyal troops and either, one, escape to Austria until the monarchy was reestablished as the sole ruling body of France, or two, take it back by force. Now, in order to do this, Louis would need to escape the Tuileries in near total secrecy as the palace was guarded heavily by the National Guard. So in a plan concocted by inner circle nobles, King Louis and his family were dressed in disguise to bypass the guards and headed for the Austrian border by the cover of darkness. Now, to many of us, this plan seemed to be doomed from the start. I mean, a bumbling, indecisive king and his hated family secretly and perhaps treasonously, fleeing a restless France was almost certain to fail if for no other reason than to discredit their national standing. But in reality, a lack of preparation, slow progression, and need for constant repairs on the cargo train led to a comedy of blunders that would ultimately result in the king being recognized and seized in the town of Varennes, just over 30 miles from the intended destination of Montmédy. Now, throughout the entire voyage, Louis and Marie Antoinette did themselves really few favors by handing out money and valuables to local townspeople, while some of those townspeople recognized the royal family, with some even saluting their presence. Now, while it's almost certain that many of them had no idea that they were witnessing an attempt to escape by the royal family, they would soon learn that this infamous decision by King Louis to flee Paris would soon turn the mood of the revolution from one of general optimism to persistent paranoia. Louis was quickly apprehended, and in the custody of military troops loyal to the revolution, King Louis and his family returned to Paris to eerie, ominous silence. Onlookers were strictly ordered by the guarding troops to neither cheer nor jeer, lest they be subjected to arrest or worse. The king's return secured the assembly's worst fear, that foreign factions, and indeed the king himself, were against the revolution. Many believed his role as the head of the constitutional monarchy was now antithetical to the idea of revolution altogether. But interestingly, at least for now, Louis was allowed to keep his role as king, albeit under immense suspicion and with his duties virtually eliminated. 
He was required to swear an oath to the Constitution, and retracting this oath would be akin to treason and lead to his abdication, and you can probably guess what else. Now, there were many radicals, led by Jacques-Pierre Brousseau and friend of the people newspaper editor Jean-Paul Marat, who called for the elimination of the monarchy in its entirety. Brousseau actually prepared a petition to be signed by the people in order to accomplish this and led a mass of supporters at the Champ du Mar to begin the signing on July 17, 1791. As chaos and rioting ensued, the National Guard, who were still led by the Marquis de Lafayette, were ordered to keep the peace at all costs and fired into the crowd, killing anywhere from 15 to 30 people. Now, the numbers do vary depending on the source, but regardless of the death toll, the massacre at the Champ du Mar swayed swaths of public opinion to the side of the radicals and severely damaged the reputation of Lafayette. It would also have substantial international ramifications for the revolution in France itself. Because following the massacre, Emperor Leopold II of Austria and Frederick William II of Prussia would sign the Declaration of Pilnitz in August, ostensibly to discuss the partition of Poland, but in it also stating their support for the French monarchy. In doing so, the radical faction of the revolution garnered even more support from the general population, as it was becoming more and more apparent that a foreign invasion was imminent. Now, this wave of support led to the signing of the Constitution of 1791, which, among other rights, established popular sovereignty, created a government of multiple branches, and split France into departments with a centralist national government headed in Paris. The National Constituent Assembly dissolved and became the Legislative Assembly. King Louis accepted the Constitution and swore to uphold it from enemies both foreign and domestic. It would be the last Constitution he would swear allegiance to in his life. But unsurprisingly for everyone involved, the cautious optimism the convening of the Legislative Assembly and the Constitution of 1791 brought on was quickly curtailed with further infighting. Indeed, many modern historians consider the Legislative Assembly to be a farcical, incompetent body that was best remembered more for its divisions rather than its ability to enact any comprehensive reform. It also alienated the sans-culotte, eliminating the vast majority of people's ability to vote. And as a result, the assembly was largely split into a monarchist fashion, which consisted of a 245-member majority, a radical Jacobin faction consisting of 136 members, and a group of 345 moderates, which would often switch sides depending on the matter at hand. And of the matters at hand, there would be many. Now, the two big ones at hand that could not be ignored were Louis' loyalty to the revolutionary cause and the loyalty of non-juring priests, that is, the layman clergy. Now, regarding Louis, the Assembly's first attempt at provoking a response from him was regarding the swath of emigres. The Assembly passed decrees approving the confiscation of property of the former nobility and threatened them with the death penalty if they did not comply. This was done out of an attempt to provoke a veto vote from King Louis and to, in practice, test his loyalty to the Assembly's decisions. Now the second, regarding the priests, gave them eight days to take their civil oath or face near certain execution. As you can imagine, this further enraged the fringe provinces and led to a state of civil war throughout the French countryside. And war would soon come to be the defining characteristic of the last few days of the monarchy because France is about to embark on the first of her nearly two generations spanning wars against the rest of Europe. Now, there is a bit of irony in the start of what we now call the French Revolutionary Wars. Throughout all of this chaos, 
much of Europe was tepidly appreciating the fall of France's international prestige and power. But as it became clear that these quote-unquote revolutionary ideals were beginning to take a stranglehold on popular opinion throughout much of the French population, many of these other European monarchies became concerned that a similar event could happen within their own borders. This was especially true in Austria, the home country of Queen Marie Antoinette, where many of the emigres had fled and were now beginning to plot counter-revolutionary campaigns to retake Paris. Now, this was not lost on many members of the assembly. And so, even with immense division within their own country, the French decided to strike the first blow by declaring war on Austria and Prussia. Led by Bourseau, who by now had taken near virtual control of the assembly, the French Revolutionary Wars began on April 20th, 1792, when French forces attacked a combined Austrian and Prussian army near their border. Now, while initially supported by a sense of revolutionary cause among the population, the first phase of the war presented a series of disastrous defeats for France. Now, this began to usher in a feeling of fear amongst the population that there were enemies within, chiefly the monarchy, that were hoping that the foreign armies would succeed, disband the revolution, and restore the Ancien Régime. This was coupled with the Brunswick Manifesto, issued by Charles William Ferdinand, the Duke of Brunswick, who commanded the foreign armies. Now, the manifesto stated that anybody opposing the invading allies would face unforgettable vengeance. So, facing the prospect of a foreign invasion to put Louis back on his absolutist throne, the assembly decided to once again strike the first blow. That's right. It's time to end the French monarchy. On August the 10th, 1792, a combined force of the Paris National Guard and provincial troops known as Federés stormed the Tuileries Palace, killing many of the Swiss guards protecting Louis and his family. Louis took refuge in the assembly hall, but at this point, it was hopeless. The assembly voted to temporarily relieve the king of his duties. A throne that had seen its modern founding in the mid-9th century under Charles the Bald, the grandson of Charlemagne, France would go on to see 45 kings between the years 1843 and 1792. But with King Louis XVI's forced abdication, after nearly 950 years, the monarchy was, for all intents and purposes, abolished. So now, with Louis off the throne, it was time to pick, yet again, another government. In late August of 1792, elections were held for the National Convention, the third legislative body in the last three years. Now, voter intimidation was widespread, and once the final tallies were counted, the convention became split among the now-famous two factions, the moderate Girondins, led by Brousseau, and the radical Montagnards, in English the Mountain, led by the big three of Maximilien Robespierre, Georges Danton, and Jean-Paul Marat. Now, we've mentioned good old Maximilien Robespierre in passing a few times already, but let's give a very brief overview of his life up to this point so we can get a full picture of the man who would, in short time, essentially become the de facto dictator of France. Maximilien Robespierre was born in 1758 in the province of Artois in northern France. His father, Francois, was a respected lawyer, and he and his wife, Jacqueline, would go on to have three more children, including Maximilien's younger brother, Augustine. Now remember him, because he'll be important as we transition back to Napoleon next week. Now like many of his revolutionary contemporaries, Maximilian would go on to study law, and he was well known for his skill at the art of rhetoric. Adhering to what he considered the idea of a virtuous self, that is, a man who stands alone accompanied only by his conscience, 
Robespierre began to develop enlightened ideals at a young age, believing in the concept of direct democracy with influence from Montesquieu and Rousseau. Active in politics throughout his young adult life, Robespierre was elected as one of the representatives from the Third Estate to the Estates General, making early speeches attacking the position of the church and society, and joined the AVCS in the creation of the National Assembly after the breakdown of negotiations. Robespierre was also a man of high egalitarian beliefs, believing in the universal right to suffrage, the abolition of slavery, and freedom of religious worship for Protestants and Jews. Now, these ideas, considered radical even for the revolutionary standards, put him at odds with the more centrist and conservative elements within the assembly and its successors. Now, it was also around this time that Robespierre began to attend the Jacobin Club in Paris. He became a leading figure within the organization after a short time with his ideas, and he would soon become a leading voice among the legislative bodies. Gaining the nickname the Incorruptible, Robespierre's adherence to a strict moral code became a central pillar to how he would achieve national prominence. Indeed, as the revolution progressed, it was Robespierre, as one of the leading members of the Paris Commune, who brought on the violence which caused the insurrection of August 10, 1792, leading to the fall of the monarchy. It would be here, as the National Convention convened for the first time, that Robespierre would transition his career from a notable revolutionary lawyer into a semi-deified dictatorial tyrant. So that brings us up to speed on Maximilien Robespierre to the present. We also spoke about Jean-Paul Marat, a leading journalist whose newspaper, The Friend of the People, would have a major influence on the public opinion of the radical Jacobin ideology. But the other literal giant we need to address briefly before we begin our blitz through the First French Republic is Georges Danton. Danton was born in 1759 in the region of Champagne, and like Robespierre, his father was a respected local lawyer. Like many children of his day, Danton was afflicted by a bout of smallpox as a young boy, leaving his face badly scarred for the rest of his life. Now, these scars, combined with his imposing height and wide frame, made him an intimidating figure among the revolutionary contemporaries. Likely dyslexic, Danton struggled at school, but was a gifted orator, and he was even banned from giving speeches at school by the principal due to his ability to disrupt classes with large, raucous crowds. Danton, like Robespierre and many of his early bourgeois revolutionary contemporaries, became a lawyer, and after the storming of the Bastille, became a member of the Paris Commune. His home in Paris was always open to like-minded individuals, and he would meet regularly with Marat and Camille de Moulin, all being members of the local political meeting club, the Club de Cordeliers. He would also frequent the Jacobin Club, meeting with Robespierre and others, and soon began his rise to prominence amongst the revolutionary hierarchy. Now, though they were unrespected, if not amicable, terms initially, it would be the rivalry between Robespierre and Danton that would dominate the National Convention and later the Committee of Public Safety. By August of 1792, after the removal of King Louis XVI, Danton would be made the French Minister of Justice, the highest juror in France, and he would order one of the early revolution's greatest tragedies, the September Massacres. Before its dissolution in September of 1792, the Legislative Assembly would orchestrate one final tragic purge before becoming the National Convention. Fearing that the Revolutionary Wars would lead to an attack on Paris after Prussian armies seized the historic fortress city of Verdun, and monarchist sympathizers already in prison would be released in exact counter-revolutionary revenge, the assembly called for volunteer militiamen to gather at the Champ de Mars. Many of these militiamen were scorned sans culottes and reveled at the chance to kill many of the men who had for so long kept them in social persecution. 
On the 2nd of September, 1792, Danton addressed the crowds, personally asking those gathered to furnish arms and, quote, charge on the enemies of our country. Within the first day alone, close to 1,000 prisoners were killed in Paris and hundreds more were killed in the peripheral provinces. While many of those killed were indeed monarchist sympathizers, the vast majority were common prisoners, Catholic priests, and Swiss guards, who, by now, if you haven't realized, have got to be the unluckiest faction among those affected by the revolution. Most of them were employed as mercenaries to keep the peace, and they wound up as a symbol of royal suppression. So many of them ended up killed, along with those who hired them. Extremely unlucky, indeed. Now, aside from the obvious brutality of the killings, the September massacres had a profound effect on the national consciousness regarding the supposed values of the French Revolution. It also horrified foreign onlookers, many believing that France was descending into total anarchy. Are these the rights of man? Is this the liberty of human nature, wrote the London Times after the massacres? To many of the common people, this event was the one that led them to concluding the revolution had lost its true purpose, generating concerns of widespread social disorder in the peripheral provinces. One of those people was one Charlotte Corday, who will become a critical player to our story here shortly. Meanwhile, though, the newly established National Convention was becoming emboldened by their consolidated power over the country. This emboldening was further strengthened by stunning French successes against the Prussian army of Almy, ensuring that the National Convention had the political, and now military, authority to rule France. On September 22, 1792, the Convention established the first French Republic, as well as the French Republican calendar, with 1792 renamed Year One. Now, the calendar in and of itself could consume its own episode, but just know that it consisted of 12 months with 30 days each and five or six extra days, depending on the leap year, known as complementary days. While we'll use conventional dates moving forward, just know that some of the important dates in our story will have the names associated with their Republican calendar counterparts. For example, the coup of 18 Brumaire when we return to Napoleon. Anyway, after the Republic was established, the convention then had to decide on what to do with King Louis XVI. After much debate, and the changing of his name to citizen Louis Capet, the convention decided to put the former king on trial. Now, while the members were initially split on his guilt for the charge of treason, the radical Jacobin faction heavily influenced more moderate factions of the convention, referring constantly to the Brunswick Manifesto and the personal correspondence of Louis to his royalist counterparts in the Austrian and Prussian armies, which, to be fair to the radicals, sounded just a little bit like a counter-revolutionary plot. And this influence worked. Louis was found guilty for conspiring against public liberty, and on January 17, 1793, the convention narrowly voted to condemn him to death. In front of a heavily armed procession, Louis was led out on the morning of January 21st to the Place de la Révolution, now known as the Place de la Concorde, had his hair cut, attempted to say his last words professing his innocence before the band drowned them out, and was promptly executed via guillotine. In an instant, with his severed head laying still in a wicker basket, King Louis XVI was no more. Unsurprisingly, a conservative Europe filled to the brim with monarchies were none too thrilled to see a fellow monarch executed, let alone in such a barbaric way as to behead him in front of a crowd of thousands of onlookers. Much of the continent then threatened to obliterate revolutionary France and all of her so-called enlightened despots, and, anticipating this, France promptly declared war on Britain and the Dutch Republic in February. 
Later joined by Spain, Portugal, Naples, and Tuscany, the war of the First Coalition had begun in earnest. And it was in this war that a certain little corporal would finally come to the stage and find out what destiny had in store for his future. But that's a story for next week. Because as the War of the First Coalition was beginning, there was indeed further political strife back in Paris. I know, shocking. In the National Convention, the centrist Girondins were anticipating that the victories in the war would provide a good excuse for the faltering economy back on the home front. But this, coupled with the forced conscription of young men from all the provinces called the Levee en masse, further added to public resentment of the Girondins and their growing political isolation. The uprisings in the conservative provinces, including the Vendée, grew even stronger, and it looked like France was, again, heading for civil war with the Republic's collapse imminent. Something needed to be installed to help restore order and the public's confidence in this government. Enter, at long last, the Committee of Public Safety. Now, initially, the Committee for Public Safety was used by the Girondins as a way to help build the public's trust back in their coalition, largely by helping to bring back social order. One of their first actions was to indict Marat before the Revolutionary Tribunal for inciting the September massacres, but this backfired tremendously. Acquitted by the Radical Tribunal, the isolation the Girondins then faced was swift. A combined coalition of the Jacobin Club, the Paris Commune, and the National Guard stormed the National Convention in an attempted coup on May 31, 1793. Now, although the coup failed, its effects spelt the end for the Girondin faction. On June 10th, nearly 40 members of the Girondins were arrested, and the Mountain, the radical faction opposite them, took over the Committee for Public Safety. It was here that the French Revolution would soon begin its infamous phase, when the Revolution would begin to eat her children. Now that the radical Mountain was in power, Maximilien Robespierre tasked his close friend and subordinate, Louis-Antoine de Saint-Just, or Saint-Just for short, with preparing yet another constitution. Nicknamed the Archangel of Terror, Saint-Just is going to be a critical player as we move into the purges. Now, completing the new constitution in just over a week, it contained radical revisions such as universal male suffrage and the abolition of slavery in the French colonies. Now, this last part would indeed reach one of the most important parts of the French colonies, Saint-Domingue, and begin a revolution there that would become a mighty thorn in the side of Napoleon Bonaparte in about a decade. But before France and Napoleon would be preoccupied with the rebelling slaves in what is now Haiti, the Committee for Public Safety got the spark it needed to begin their consolidation of power over the entire French government. I introduced Charlotte Corday earlier in the episode and that she would become an important player as we pressed on. Well, now is her time to enter into the history books. Ms. Corday was born in northern France in what is now the Orne Department. Born into an aristocratic family, Corday sympathized with the Girondins and, over the course of the Revolution, began to become dismayed at how radical it was becoming. She blamed much of this radicalization on Jean-Paul Marat and his writings, and so she devised a plan to meet with Marat at his home under the auspice of having a list of names of potential counter-revolutionaries that they could arrest and, once allowed in, kill him. Now, Marat had been bedridden, or rather bathridden, by a debilitating skin condition that was only managed by a near-constant bath mixed with soothing compounds. As a result, he was forced to take his writings into a makeshift desk from his custom bathtub, and so, if one so chose, it would be easy to kill him in his compromised state. And Corday, well, she took full advantage of this. 
On July 13th, 1793, Corday entered Morat's home with his permission, gave him a list of fake names, and promptly stabbed him to death. Now, while Corday had envisioned herself as a martyr for the Girondin cause, and one which most of France would support given the growing discontent with the radicalization of the National Convention, it actually had the opposite effect. She was arrested, executed by guillotine, and the Committee of Public Safety had the excuse they needed to assert complete control over the French public. The newly drafted Constitution of 1793 was suspended until at least October, and the reign of terror had officially begun. Now, the committee had the added benefit of taking power in the midst of a growing internal dissent amongst their own opponents, something which they would use to their strategic advantage. For example, we've mentioned multiple times over the course of these last two episodes of the counter-revolution in the peripheral provinces, but even in their anger towards the government, they could not really agree on what it was they were fighting for. Some wanted a restored monarchy, yes, but others supported a Republican government, but one that supported the Catholic Church. This was especially true after the government had begun to push a state religion known as the Cult of Reason, a somewhat agnostic faith meant to build unity amongst the general population. And so, within all of this external and internal division, the committee was able to lay the groundwork for their agenda. Economic regulation, winning the war against the coalition, and further proselytizing the cult of reason. They instituted a second levee en masse in August of 1793, and with these additional troops were able to retake control of Lyon, Marseille, and Bordeaux from counter-revolutionaries, and then subsequently won strategic battles against the coalition forces at Honshu and Watignies. Now, many of these victories are credited with a new class of military leaders selected on account of their merit rather than their social standing, as had been the tradition in France and was still the standard in the rest of Europe. One of these leaders was a young colonel who just so happens to be the protagonist of our story, Napoleon Bonaparte, who scored a critical victory over the British in the Siege of Toulon. Now, I'm going to leave Napoleon here for now because I'm going to give a much deeper dive into his career during the revolution next week. But just know that Napoleon's victory at Toulon was a huge victory for the Committee of Public Safety that helped give legitimacy to their rule over France. And they would use that legitimacy to unscrupulous effect. And after the Constitution was suspended following Marat's assassination, the Convention set a range of price controls over many goods to prevent rising costs, as well as to discourage the practice of hoarding among merchants, even threatening executions for those who did not comply. On the 17th of September, the Law of Suspects was enacted by the Convention in order to further deter enemies of freedom, i.e. arresting and executing anyone who did not comply with revolutionary ideals. Now, most historians agree on this as the start of the terror, when terror became the order of the day. But as I mentioned before, I personally believe the assassination of Marat to be the beginning of the terror. Not so much because it led to a massive influx in executions, but because it set the stage for what was to come giving total control over to the Committee of Public Safety and allowing fear and paranoia to run rampant with lethal consequences. But regardless of when it started, the terror would fill the following year with suspicion, arrests, and summary executions. Now, the total number executed during the terror is disputed, but most figures generally have the death count between 16 and 40,000 victims. Many of those died were still awaiting trial or were summarily executed without even having one. Furthermore, the financial situation in France was now becoming dire. While the fixing of prices was meant to discourage hoarding, it only added to an untenable economic model. Prices soared with unchecked printing of paper assignat, a foolproof method of preventing uncontrollable inflation, as I'm sure we're all well aware. To this end, 
Much of the public debt inherited from the monarchy had been paid for by repossessed property of the emigres, but this would only go so far as long as there were buyers. In fact, the debt increased during this time due to the War of the First Coalition, and the soaring inflation led to prices on goods that were impossible to pay for. And so among all of this chaos, the convention gave sole power to the Committee of Public Safety as the supreme revolutionary government in October, further suspending the Constitution of 1793, which, at this point, had been a legal document for, like, a month. Now, the committee would use this unchecked power to brutal effect, executing the long-hated Austrian in their midst, Marie Antoinette, followed by the arrested Girondin leaders, all via the national razor, La Madame Guillotine. Now, this murder spree was not confined to Paris, and with victories over the rebelling peripheral provinces now becoming more common, retributionary killings were widespread among the Republican forces. The most infamous of these was carried out by mountain leader Jean-Baptiste Carrier, in which he ordered the execution of some 4,000 people by drowning them in the Loire River. Now, most of these victims were priests, women, and children. Carrier would face justice for these atrocious war crimes, being executed himself in December of 1794, but the infamy of his actions would lead to international condemnation and further highlighted the hypocrisy seen throughout the course of the revolution. But the terror is best remembered today for the extreme paranoia that was exhibited throughout the country, particularly in Paris. Even the slightest mention of counter-revolutionary thought was enough to have one arrested and tried for treason. Most of these trials ended in convictions and execution, and even the most fervent of revolutionaries were not immune. And this is where we get the phrase, the revolution would devour her children. And indeed, she would be devouring many of them as 1794 began. After the purge of the Girondins from the National Convention in mid-1793, the mountain was the clear ruler of French policy. But now, there were growing factions within the mountain, and it led to further division and suspicion in the convention. It was split amongst two main bodies, the even more radical Hiberists, led by its namesake Jacques Hibert, and the moderates, led by Georges Danton and Camille Desmoulins, with affiliation from Robespierre. Now, while Robespierre himself was ideologically more inclined to side with the Hiberists, he simply could not get past their overzealous atheism. Now, while Robespierre was not a huge fan of the Catholic Church, he was himself a deist and believed that religion was an important part in keeping society functioning. Coupling this with their belief in complete state control of the economy, these proto-communists drew a wedge between themselves and the rest of the mountain. As a result, Hibert and 19 of his colleagues were arrested on March 24, 1794, taken to the gallows, and guillotined. Because if there's one thing we've learned so far about the terror, the revolution always consumes her children. And as it turns out, this was just the appetizer. Because to keep the remaining Hiberis loyal to his own interests, Robespierre had his former friend and colleague, Georges Danton, arrested and executed on April 5th after a heavily publicized show trial. Desmoulins would join Danton in adding their heads to the wicker basket, and just like that, two of the most influential and important French revolutionaries were devoured by the very revolution they had helped to initiate. It was a cruel irony that Danton, this blustering, oratorical giant, would meet such a swift end at the hands of the men whom he sacrificed so much for. But Danton's death would not come in vain. In a sense, the case can be made his execution made him the revolution's national martyr, leading to the end of the terror and bringing down the very man 
who led to his demise. It was Danton's death that damaged Robespierre more than any other during this period. Sure, he had survived assassination attempts by Sanculot, who hated his guts, but his overall grip on power over the convention in general and the Committee of Public Safety specifically meant that he was nearly untouchable. He was, after all, nicknamed the Incorruptible, remember? But as he gained more and more control, it became clear that Robespierre was starting to go, well, a little power drunk, and perhaps a little mad as well. It's no surprise these assassination attempts likely led to him having a sense of extreme paranoia and fear of being betrayed by those closest to him, especially as he began to yield more and more authority. But ironically, it was indeed this paranoia that led those closest to him to begin to wonder if keeping him around was doing more harm than good. You couple this with the law of 22 Prairial, June 10, 1794 to us common folk, and it was becoming clear that the Committee of Public Safety was zipping right past Orwellian and landing right on pure evil. The law denied, quote, enemies of the people the right to self-defense, bringing many accused from the peripheral provinces to Paris, where they would face a trial in name only, be convicted, and sent to the guillotine. It is said that the number of executions per day rose from around 5 in 1793 to 26 after June 1794. Now, Robespierre, likely well past a point of clarity, also began to style himself as sort of a second-coming type of figure. He began a movement known as the Cult of the Supreme Being, and guess who was the Supreme Being, and spent lavishly on its ceremonies. Now, this ridiculous abuse of power, I mean, let's call it like we see it, was also coupled with the relaxation of price controls, leading to further economic troubles and a general state of fear among the people that any one of them could be next on the literal chopping block. Robespierre's detractors began to grow, and other members of the committee called him a dictator to his face in a late June meeting. Robespierre responded in kind by not attending the following sessions, a colossal blunder that would help other members of the convention and committee form a large coalition against him. With the added benefit of military successes against the first coalition forces, the timing was right to oust Robespierre from power. On July 26, 1794, Robespierre entered the convention halls and delivered a rambling speech, claiming he had a list of names of convention members who were conspiring against the Republic. When he refused to provide the names, the convention broke up in chaos. Knowing that if they did not act first, Robespierre would use his authority to purge the convention. The next morning, July 27th, or 9 Thermidor, Robespierre and his colleagues, Saint-Just, Georges Couton, François Henriot, and Brother Augustine, were shouted down and removed from the convention. Robespierre's voice even cracked when he tried to shout out names, leading one member of the convention to famously cry out, the blood of Danton chokes him. Robespierre and his allies fled the convention, seeking refuge in the Hotel de Ville, but were met there by the National Guard, loyal to the convention. They detained Robespierre, who, attempting suicide by shooting himself in the face, was severely wounded, breaking his jaw. He, along with 19 of his colleagues and 83 members of the Paris Commune, were executed the following day. The law of 22 Prairial was repealed shortly after, and any surviving Girondins were able to regain their seats in the convention. The Jacobin Club thereafter was permanently banned, and its influence on the government was effectively terminated. And so, that brings us to the final stage of our mini-series on the French Revolution, the Thermidorian Reaction. So named because of the coup of Nine Thermidor, the Thermidorian Reaction was the series of events that immediately followed the fall of Maximilien Robespierre. Revenge killings became a persistent theme in the peripheral provinces, 
especially among suspected Jacobins, Republican officials, and Protestants. But revenge was also on the mind of those who succeeded in the coup itself. As mentioned, most of the leaders of the Commune and the Jacobins were purged out of existence, but there were some key members who not only escaped the National Razor, but maintained their positions in power. Paul Barra, who will be a big player in our story in coming episodes as chief executive of the Directory, was allowed to keep his post, as was Joseph Fouché, who directed much of the massacres in Lyon and would later serve as Minister of Police during the Directory, the Consulate, and the Empire. And of course, there was Napoleon Bonaparte, who was spared persecution of his Jacobin leanings, as well as his friendship with Augustine Robespierre, due to his massive successes on his campaigns in Italy. But, again, that's a story for another day. The French government began to prepare the country for a new political order. Called the Thermidorian Convention due to its reactionary policies following the coup of Nine Thermidor, the government was initially welcomed with tepid support from an exhausted and, frankly, terrified public. In December of 1794, the Treaty of La Jeunesse would end the military counter-revolutionary civil wars in the provincial provinces and would also allow for freedom of worship and the return of non-juring priests, a major concessionary victory for the conservative provinces. Now, these concessions were further bolstered by military successes in the Netherlands, allowing France to set up her famous sister republic, i.e. client state, in the Batavian Republic, as well as ending the war with Prussia with the treaties of the Peace of Basel in April of 1795. These treaties ended the War of the First Coalition, with French victory assured. However, many of these external victories came at a great cost on the home front. In a common theme of the early revolution, the winter of 1794-95 was the worst on record since 1709, leading to a poor harvest and leading to further food shortages, which were exacerbated by the need to get much of this grain to troops in modern-day Belgium to help bring an end to the war. By the spring of 1795, while peace was temporarily being restored in Europe, food shortages and a plummeting value of the Assignat meant that the Thermidorian government would need to put down further burgeoning insurrectionary plots. Many Jacobin sympathizers were arrested and summarily executed, and it began to look like the terror was becoming a rose, but by another name. It was then agreed upon that a new government would need to be put in place to avoid further disintegration into violence and chaos. A new committee drafted a new constitution, known to history as the Constitution of Year 3. It went to the public for vote and was approved on September 23, 1795. Its preamble is the Declaration of Rights of Man and of the Citizen, and it established a bicameral legislature, established to help prevent the swings of power seen by the unicameral legislature of the previous assemblies. Executive power was held in the hands of a council of five directors, selected upon by the upper house of the Council of Ancients, with a five-year mandate for each director. This government, largely considered inefficient and corrupt by most historians, became known as the Directory, and it would rule the country until 1799, when, well, we'll get there soon. Now, the Directory in and of itself would have been another few episodes, but as I mentioned at the start of this two-part divergent miniseries, we're ending with its formation. While lesser known than its assembly predecessors, mostly because of the legendary figures within them and the violence they implemented to retain their power, the Directory would be the body that gave Napoleon Bonaparte the foundation he needed to become, well, Napoleon. So we'll leave the Directory here for now. But don't fret. There will be plenty of time for them later in the series and in Napoleon's military campaigns in Italy and Egypt. But next week, as we now have the stage set, we're going to rewind all the way back to the late 1780s as King Louis is getting ready to manage an uncontrollable financial situation, and Napoleon is back in Corsica, fighting with himself on whose allegiance he would swear fealty to.
Because finally, Napoleon the Recruit is going to become Napoleon the Soldier.